Texas and all this summer, we've been going through this series uh, that really should be entitled, uh, The Kind of Church Your New Pastor Wants to Go To. Um, But you really ought to be asking yourself the question, well, who would ever care about that? (laughs) Why should we care about what you think, Les? And the answer to that is, is because we're in the midst of a lot of transition in this church. A lot of new staff. We're about to go out to a new building, Lord willing, in the next year, year and a half or so. And we've said that the best way to make it through transition is to have a strong sense of personal identity. You've got to know who you are. And so we've said that we want to, first of all, be a place of the book, where the Bible sort of is the center of everything because of the claims that the Bible makes about itself. We then said that we wanted to be a place of grace, where <laughs> one of my friends told me one time, He said, I want to go to a church where the people feel comfortable coming there that are like the people in the Bible. You know, the failures and the screw-ups. Because everybody in the Bible seems to come with with dirt spilt on them. We said in the last two weeks that we want to be a place of change, where, where I'm not static, I'm not stuck. That God is not only at work in me, but after working in me, He's at work in communities around me to see it shaped in the way in which He would have it. Well, what I want to focus on this morning, finally, as the last in this series, is to finish by saying that I want to be a part of a fellowship that is a place of celebration. A place of celebration. Now, you could ask me the question, Les, why do you want to be that? Well, I think for at least two reasons I can think of off the top of my head. The first is, is that we know that Jesus inaugurated his public mission with a celebration. The very first miracle that Jesus performed was in Cana at a wedding where he turned a a, a bunch of water into a bunch of wine. Go back and look up Brian Sorgan, for I preached on this back in the spring. Uh, Go back to that sermon and see. And what you'll find is that Jesus sort of sums up the lesson of that event. And John does by saying in verse 11 that he did this thing so that he could what? Manifest his glory. Uh, We love to sort of get... um, preoccupied with a, with a leader's first few days in office. You know, the, 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 the reporters and the pundits love to talk about the president's first 100 days in office. What did he accomplish in 100 days? Why do we get fixated on that? Because typically, the way someone begins their ministry is going to say a lot about how that ministry is going to go in the future. And so Jesus begins his ministry by throwing a party, right? And so therefore, what I think he's saying is, is that the kingdom that Jesus is bringing is going to be ushered in while his people are celebrating. That's what he wants to see, that there's celebration there. But the second reason that I think we ought to be a place of celebration is because I learned very early on that I was far more motivated to change my life by joy than I ever am by shame and guilt. But I also realize that there is a tendency, it's almost an inertia of that sort of sin nature still left in the hearts of religious people to assume that shame and guilt is about, is is the reason why you're here this morning. (laughs) That we came here to get that sort of next dose of cough medicine, which just tastes terrible going down, that we kind of choke as we do, because that's what we've got to do in order to be, you know, the upstanding citizens that we want to be. I mean, that's why I came to church last, right? But is that our motivation? I want to submit to you that the people of the Bible and these disciples went and gave their lives not because they were scared of what God was going to do for them if they didn't. They did so because they found joy, a relief from the shame and guilt that had plagued them so much. 
Why? Well, the book of Revelation, I would submit to you, gives us an answer to that question of why there is a party going on by showing us what heaven is like. And so therefore, you have to look beyond the veil at three things that we're going to talk about this morning. We want to look at the timing in heaven. We want to look at the topic of heaven. And then finally, we want to look at the task of heaven. Timing, topic, task, they all start with the letter T. Fancy preacher tricks. They're just coming at you left and right here. (laughs) Alliteration? Um, First of all, timing, okay? This is huge to understand this. If you actually go back to Revelation chapter 4, we didn't have time to read it. John has invited his readers to step through a door. He said at the beginning of chapter 4 that, Behold, I saw a door standing open in heaven. And as he enters into that and goes through that, he begins to find himself in an entirely different world. But it's not the kind of world, uh, sort of this distant, ethereal world of ghosts and spirits. But actually that world is the place where God lives. And what he finds in that world is that that world is the real world and that we are the shadow world. That we are sort of uh, booting our operating system off of the information that's coming from that world. And you know what? It's just a thin veil. And he gets to see that veil drop for a moment. And he says it totally changes the way you look at your world. Um, It's it's now been almost 20 years uh, since the movie uh, The Sixth Sense came out. So, And I don't know what the statute of limitation is on uh, movie spoilers, but if you haven't seen The Sixth Sense yet, I'm not apologizing for spoiling the movie for you here at this very moment. But if you've seen the movie, you know that as you're watching the movie, like normally, you assume that you're watching the movie from the point of view of the living. But do you remember sort of the the exhilaration, the kind of kick that came at the very last moment of the movie where you're suddenly like, I'm watching this movie from the point of view of the dead. And it blows you away. Well, when you become a Christian, it's a little bit like that, but in reverse. Because what happens when a Christian sort of embraces the gospel after living a life of of drudgery and duty and plodding along, it's as if there's this light that comes on and you say to yourself, wait, so this is not just my story that I'm living. You're saying that I'm actually a part of his story, of God's story that he's telling. Where do I fit in the midst of that? And as it turns out, that's a really good question. Because if you'll frame it this way, it'll help you keep from making a mistake interpretively when it comes to revelation that a lot of people end up wrestling with. Because you've got to understand what revelation is picturing for us. And and this may be controversial for you, but don't, don't let it upset you too much. But buy into where I'm going. I do not believe that the events that are depicted for us in revelation are describing things that are in an exclusive future that we are waiting to experience. Catch that? Which is what most people think Revelation is. These are events coming in our distant future. I don't think that's what these are. But nor do I think that they are events that are being described from a distant past that was only applicable to the people who received John's letter in the first place. Okay? So they're not exclusively in the future and not exclusively in the past. Well, what are they? I think what John is describing for us in highly symbolic terms is a situation that is ongoing through every single epoch of church history. Every era of church history will see the events that are unfolded for us in Revelation 
uh, throughout the book of Revelation. Which brings us to this scroll. What is that scroll that, that, that gets unfolded there? And John is awfully upset about the fact that there's nobody there to actually open the scroll. But what does that scroll symbolize? Now, I wish we had more time to sort of unpack that, but suffice it to say this. The scroll, we notice, is actually written on both sides. And we know from ancient Near Eastern sources that legal documents were typically documents that would be written on both sides because you had to keep all the information in one place. And so given that and the other events following from that scroll, I want to submit to you that scroll is basically God unfolding the events of human history and his plan to fix the wrongs of human history. Does that make sense? The unrolling of the scroll as we watch history lay out as it goes in chapters 5, 6, and 7 especially is how God is going to come and unroll and show how to make sense of the world. And when no one in heaven and earth is found that is able to open that scroll, John cries. You want to know why? Because if no one can fix the wrongs of the universe, then life makes no sense. It's meaningless. And so he weeps. But in the chapters to follow, as the scroll gets unfolded, you begin to see that these events are still going on. We are living in the time of Revelation 5 right now. And it's just on the other side of a veil. Heaven is not, despite Stevie Wonder's insistence that it is, seven zillion light years away. Heaven is... Stevie Wonder had a song called Heaven is Seven Zillion Light Years Away. So... Who is Stevie Wonder? All the college students just asked. Don't even ask that question. But he's describing something that is in a world that is just on the other side of a veil that exists simply because of our blindness. That's the door John goes through. He's not that many zillion lights either way. Heaven is God's space among us. It's here. It's now. And so that might lead you to the question, what is it that's going on on the other side of this little veil? You ready? It's a party. It's a celebration. Just on the other side of that world, as it exerts influence onto this side of the world, we find that the people of God are celebrating. Right now, at this very moment, that's what's going on. So that's the first point, the timing of heaven. Secondly, though, what are they talking about? What's the topic, secondly, of the conversation going to heaven. Well, I think John is just as interested in the big hullabaloo as you might be. What's worth celebrating? Well, it turns out that the angel comes and tells him. The angel says, look, if you want to know what everybody's so excited about, go look at the lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah is what we're all excited about. And so John's like, okay. And so he turns and he looks. But instead of seeing a lion, he sees a lamb with his throat cut. And he's got ten horns on his head. A horn is, the, is a symbol for, for royalty in the Old Testament. And so it means he's a perfect king. He's got seven eyes, which show that he's in possession of the seven spirits, an allusion to the, to the Holy Spirit of God. This is a very Trinitarian uh, sort of chapter where you see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit pictured in one central spot. But now hopefully you can see why it is that the people of heaven get very excited when the Lamb shows up and grabs the scroll. The reason why, why? Well, because, we'll go back to the scroll. If the scroll is how events of history unroll and unfold, you're not paying attention if you don't realize that there's a problem. There's a problem. 
Because how is the lion slash lamb going to fix the wrongs of human history? How are they going to deal with the injustices and the oppressions and the cruelties that happen every single day? That's a very good question. John R. W. Stott, in his wonderful book, I'll probably refer to this over and over again, um, called The Cross of Christ, has one chapter where he talks about when dealing with forgiveness, God has a problem. And he puts it in quotes just like I am right now. And that is, God realizes that there has to be a desire on His hand to keep the law that He has established. God has made a universe that actually has a pattern, an order to it that's expressed in His law. Of course, if He decides then to sort of sweep our sins under the carpet, He ceases to be just, does He not? Every law that's broken has to have its punishment. But on the other hand, we find that in places like Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so if the wages of sin is death, how does God keep his people that he loves around him in the midst of his own justice and law? Let me see if I can say it this way. Imagine that there is in the universe law and that there is in the universe love. The question that becomes... How can you have both in the same universe? That is, if God decides that he's going to honor his law, his rule-keeping, his perfection, to the exclusion of his love, the universe is done. (laughs) Because that means you and I have to be perfect. And if we're not, we're justly deserving his displeasure. And if that's the case, nobody survives if that's the universe we live in. In which case, you become a pessimist, I guess. But if God decides he's going to honor his love to the exclusion of his law, well, then you get the sentimentality God. (laughs) The God who's sort of the smarmy, sort of uh, just loves to be around you, but with no sort of truth behind it. In other words, you've got a God who actually has ceased to become God because he's not holy. The point is this. In the midst of the cross, we have got to see both of these things come together. There's an old Scottish hymn writer named Horatius Bonner who put it this way, Law and love must be reconciled. Both must stand or else the pillars of the universe will be shaken. Is that overstating it? I don't know. But here's the point. What the book of Revelation comes and says, especially Revelation chapter 5, is that Jesus is both lion and and lamb. As lion, Jesus comes to uphold the law of God perfectly. He comes to people to establish a life substitute. All throughout the gospel, Jesus keeps doing these things that don't make any sense. Remember John the Baptist kind of freaking out that Jesus comes to get baptized by him? Jesus walks in to be baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist is like, uh, this is for repentance. You're the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm not going to baptize. You should baptize me. And what does Jesus say? He says, suffice it for now in order to what? Fulfill all righteousness. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he says, I'm establishing this record for my people. I'm the lion of the tribe of Judah establishing this perfectly. He's a life substitute. But then on the other hand, as lamb, he's our death substitute as well. That is, he absorbs in his own person on the cross the penalty that we were supposed to get. To get. So only at the cross do you have the resolution to God's problem, His problem. 
And what that means then is when people begin to wrestle through their lives, especially when it deals with suffering and pain, Christians have an utterly unique way to approach it. An utterly unique way. See if I can put it to you this way. Was Jesus' death on the cross the worst thing that ever happened in human history? Or was it the best thing that ever happened in human history? Now, you would be forgiven if you said to yourself, that feels like a trick question, because it is. Because the answer is both. The Son of God is crucified by His own people. That's the worst thing that could possibly happen. But yet that same event becomes the way in which He's going to redeem His people. And here's what's so crazy. (laughs) Is that in the midst of that deal, you have Christianity's central difference of dealing with human suffering. You know, there's a lot of people and religions in the world that deal with suffering as if it's your fault. I don't know why you're suffering, but there must be something that you've done. Maybe you haven't appeased the gods. Maybe you haven't offered sacrifice to them to sort of divert their wrath from you. Is that it? Some of us feel this way, even though we won't sacrifice animals. Have you ever gotten to those periods of life when things are just hard, and there's pain and there's sourness, and you say to yourself, what did I do? What did I do to deserve this? Why is God picking on me? Is that it? On the other hand, though, you've got kind of your your Eastern religions who look and say, no, 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 the pain and the suffering in your life, that's an illusion. It's not really there. It's not really true. And if you'll go through these techniques, you can release yourself from the idea of your pain and your suffering. How long does that work? There's nothing more real to the suffering person than their pain, no matter how much you tell them, no matter how many little gimmicks that you do. But see, Christianity is neither of those two things. And it's utterly unique. Because the Christian view says, look, God is going to take your suffering and that self-same event of pain and of disappointment and of disillusionment, He's going to redeem. He's going to turn it around. He's not going to deny it, nor does He punish you for it. He's going to redeem it. We'll try this on for you. Was it the best thing or the worst thing that happened to you when you lost your job? Was it the best thing or the worst thing that happened to you when you entered into rehab at the lowest point of your life? Was it the best thing or the worst thing when you lost your parent? When she broke up with you? When the doctor delivered the bad news? You see, because only Christians are the ones who answer those questions in this way. Well, you know, as hard as it is to admit, it was kind of both. It was the hardest thing I ever went through. And yet I learned something about myself that I would never have known otherwise. Only Christians had that mechanism inside them. Why? Because of the cross. Do you see now why we're celebrating? We're celebrating because we found the answer to everything. To everything. We finally have found the meaning of life. It's here at the center of the universe that we can look at our suffering and celebrate because we found it. We found the pearl of great price. We found the lost coin. We found the lost son. It's one of my favorite lines in the, in, in the story of the prodigal son. You remember when the father goes to the older brother, who, by the way, refuses to go into the party? Hmm? And what does he say to him? He looks and goes, look, we had to celebrate because the son was lost 
And now he's found. And you know what was crazy? It was an expensive party. There's been a lot of money on it. There was really nice food there. Not your average stuff that was there. And there was likely strong drink that was there too. Uh, they probably had laughing, you know? Pin the tail on the donkey. I don't know, whatever you did with ancient Near Eastern parties. But it had it all. And you know what? Small little thing. If your first reaction, and I do mean your first reaction, to hear the news of strong drink being at a party makes you think to yourself, oh, well, <clears throat> are we going to be wise about this? Is that really wise? I'm not saying that's a bad question. I'm just saying if it's the first thought that you have, maybe we ought to go back and camp out on Revelation 5 a little bit more. Because the Proverbs writer says the wine makes the heart merry. There's a legitimate good use there that we ought to celebrate in the midst of our, of our joy. Is that a possibility in our own celebration? Okay, that brings me to the last point, and that is the task of heaven. Okay, so what does this mean? Well, it simply means that the kingdom of God is a party. And the reason why we're throwing those parties is because in the midst of it, we find essential delight. Uh, this is one of my favorite sort of passages from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis has a little uh, commentary. It's kind of a little essays on the Psalms. And in one particular part of that book, he's talking about how often in the Psalms they say how happy they are to go to church so they can sing. And C.S. Lewis was like, ah, maybe. It's not that great. What's the whole joy in this? When he suddenly realizes, though, that this thing that, was, that made the thing enjoyable, that praising something was actually an essential part of the fun. Follow me here. I'm going to read this passage because it's just so good. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not only expresses, but it completes the enjoyment of the thing. It's a pointed consummation. It is its pointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. Or to come suddenly at the, at the turn of road upon a, sudden, a, a mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. You ever been there? Look at that sunset. We're late. Yeah, but look at the sunset. Or to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. Listen to this. He says, the Scottish Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify and in commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. Do you see what he's saying? Look, if we're finding ourselves having to grit our teeth through these kinds of things, we need to stop and ask ourselves the question, what is it that could possibly exist that would make a hymn writer say something like this, for, oh, eternity is too short to utter all thy praise. And don't just assume that he's religious because of that. Ask the question, what could be that good? So what does it mean for us as a church? Well, I think it means that we are throwing parties, like really good parties, and like all the time. You can't have a God of the Old Testament, you know, the mean Old Testament God that we don't believe in anymore. When he, when he established a nation state of Israel, do you realize he set aside something like six, seven, eight like feast days? 
so his people could party on a regular basis. You can't have that and not center things around joy. What would happen if this were the place where our instinct was to cheer for each other, to root one another on, to be the people that are, that are in each other's corner? How different would we be? I think it would change everything. You want to know why? Because everybody loves to be celebrated. Everyone loves to be celebrated. Yeah, I had my first experience of this at um, uh, my oldest daughter's graduation uh, back in May from uh, Oxford High School, that fine institution. Uh, and we had it over in the Tad Pad, a few thousand people kind of jammed in there. And I had a lot of sympathy uh, for Mr. Robertson, who got up at the beginning of the uh, uh, festivities and said, now, if you could please uh, hold your applause until we get to the end. You see, some of y'all are laughing because you've been to graduation before. Because the exact opposite happens. It's as if the collective crowd was like, whatever. <laughs> You're not going to keep me from celebrating that kid. Do you know what they accomplished, right? The joy couldn't help but come out, could it? I, this is probably dangerous to say in a room like this. Yeah, definitely is dangerous. But here we go. I found it fascinating that the African-American community at that graduation were the loudest celebrators. And the rest of us white people were the ones who were sitting around nervously being like, didn't they hear that this is against the rules? <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Which one is more like heaven? Told you. Told you I was dangerous. Oh, dare he. I just want you to consider briefly as I close this morning about the power of celebrating one another. Think about the difference that happens when you know someone celebrates in you. I have a favorite song by one of my favorite artists, uh, Bruce Hornsby. Guy's still kicking, making great music. But he's got a song called Hooray for Tom. I want you to listen to the lyrics for this. It's actually about what I imagine to be a, maybe a third grade kid who's just uh, been to a spelling bee. Okay? All right. Brace yourself, third grade kids. He says, will it really help me to learn about Frederick the Great and when Rome burned? I wish they'd skip over me when it's my turn. All this useless information so that I can talk way above my station. And I lost when I couldn't spell congratulations. But hooray, hooray for Tom. He won the spelling bee. Spelled the difficult words so right and now he's on TV. Oh, hooray, hooray for Tom. He's up there for all to see. I hope someday they say hooray for me. Teach me long division so that I can figure out baseball stats, batting average, fielding percentage, and all that. Well, I learned more at home, okay? Learn how to scrap, learn some funny things to say. But I lost when I spelled B A N A N A N A. But hooray, hooray for Tom. He won the spelling bee. Spelled the difficult words so right, now he's on TV. Hooray, hooray for Tom. He's up there for all to see. I hope someday they say hooray for me. There's a couple of months ago we watched a movie called Wonder about a little kid with a severe facial deformity who finally goes to school for the first time and faces the double takes and the cruel looks. And at one point in the midst of it, his big sister says, you know, there ought to be a rule that everyone in the world gets a standing ovation at least once in their life. Don't you agree? Like, What if we were a church who had said, look, just on the other side of the thinnest little veil, 
there is a party going on where they celebrate the God of the universe. And you want to know why they're celebrating? Because having celebrated Him, He did something for us that means that He celebrates His people. And that means that the best business we do here is to celebrate each other. How different would we be? A place of the book. A place of grace. A place of change. Praise the Lord. A place of celebration. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, you've got to make us that because we are caved in with our fears, our worries, our anxieties, the business of life. And yet we came here to sing which means that we joined in with the heavenly choir who is singing right now, just on the other side of a veil that we can't see. So Father, in the the moments ahead as we sing, would you you thin that veil just a little bit that we might step up into heaven and see what what all the hubbub is about. And in so doing, make us to be different. For we ask it in Jesus' name.